Thank you for joining us for another lesson from God's Word. The West Huntsville Church of Christ at Providence is located at 1519 Old Monrovia Road, Northwest, Huntsville, Alabama, 35806. Anytime you're in the Huntsville area, we hope you'll stop in and be part of our worship. Sunday morning worship is at 9 o'clock, with Bible class immediately following. Sunday evening worship is at 5. Midweek Bible study is held Wednesdays at 7. Good afternoon to all of you. Some of us have come back. Class is a little larger than normal. We have visitors here tonight, and thank you for being here. Last week, I did a dumb thing. I passed out notes to all of you, and the many, many people that are online didn't get the notes. That was not good. So I hope you have your Bible. That's your notes for tonight. Romans chapter 4. This is a beautiful study. And I'm glad you're here. Have you ever heard anyone say, I don't read the Bible anymore because it contradicts itself? Of course you have. Give me an example. Well, over in Ecclesiastes 12, 13, fear God and keep his commandments. This is the whole duty of man. But we're not supposed to fear God if we really love him because John said in 1 John 4, 18, perfect love casts out fear. It's a contradiction. No, it's not. Look at the definitions of fear. Many words have many definitions. Fear has two major definitions. Fear has the definition of fright or respect. And they're used here both ways. Respect God and keep his commandments. Be awed by God. Keep his commandments. And then perfect love casts out fright. If you perfectly love God, you're not going to be afraid of him. You're going to respect him. You're going to have the right kind of fear applied. Many other examples, but we're going to use that one later on in our study today to talk about another set of definitions. Romans chapter 4, verse 1. What then shall we say that Abraham our father was found according to the faith? Hmm. Has found according to the faith. I believe that as we study the Bible, as we read it and ponder and meditate upon it, we learn more about it. I was talking to a man just a minute ago, a brother here, who was talking about having read Romans chapter 4. How was he intrigued by it? I hope all of you read it. But I have a question for you. Why did the Holy Spirit select Abraham? As an example, when he inspired Paul to write about salvation, that's what he just said in verse 1. What shall we say that Abraham, our father, has found according to the flesh? Abraham was pagan by birth. His people believed in many gods up in Ur of the Chaldees. Abraham was not a Jew. He did not know Moses. He preceded Moses by 
500 years. Abraham was a patriarch. That's strange, isn't it? Abraham was not selected on the basis of merit. God didn't look down and say, well, this is such a great man, I'm going to select him. I don't know why God selected him, but he selected him out of a pagan society. Now, verse 2 says, for if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God. And it was accounted to him for righteousness. Abraham was not saved by works. He was saved by faith. I want you to hold on to that. I want you to stay with me because this is a very important point throughout this chapter and throughout the book, as a matter of fact. Mankind has a... We have a disease, all of us. The disease is you owe me something because I'm bigger than you are, I'm better than you, I'm more righteous than you, so you owe me something. That's how we are. I'm not going to be a subjection to you. You're going to be a subjection to me. Abraham couldn't say that. Abraham believed God. It was accounted him for righteousness. Well, does anyone believe he's better than God? I think so. I referred to Buddha the other day uh, about something that I'm going back to right now. Buddha has a story in his book about a prodigal son. It's really there. I have a copy of it. Prodigal son left home. Then he wanted to come back. He lost everything he had. He wanted to come back. But he didn't know what daddy would say about it. So he went back and he sort of poked around the farm a little bit. He saw his father but didn't make friends with him. His father saw him. They looked at each other. They they were not really like father's son. He left and then he returned and he got a job. The prodigal son got a job on his father's farm handling human and animal waste. It was his job. And he did that for many years. He was the lowest of the low. The father knew who he was. He knew who daddy was. But that was their relationship. But as time went on, the father became older and weaker. And finally he said, maybe my son has learned enough that he'll be able to take over this position. I'm going to elevate him to this position now. So he did. He granted running the farm to his prodigal son. But it took years. Now there's something about Jesus' story that's a bit different. And if you haven't seen this, look at it and make sure I'm right. In that hog pen, he said, I will arise, go to my father, say, Father, I've sinned against you and in your sight. No more worthy to be called your son. Make me one of your hired servants. And I've always thought that the prodigal son said that over and over and over again as he approaches his father's house. I don't know that he did. It's a little bit reading something into it, but I'm sure that he knew what he wanted to say, knew how he wanted to say it. And when the father ran to meet him, he said, Father, I've sinned against heaven in your sight. 
I'm not worthy to be, I'm not worthy to be called your son. The father said, bring a robe, put it on his shoulders, sandal on his feet, a ring on his finger, kill the fatted calf. This my son was dead and is alive again. He's was lost and is found. Did you notice that he never got around to saying, make me one of your hired servants? Because daddy interrupted him. Not going to be. He came back as a son, not as a hired servant. There's a difference, a great deal of difference. Now, verse 4 says, Now to him who works, the wages are not counted as grace, but as debt. If I work for you, if I mow your grass, because your grass needs mowing and you employed me, I want you to pay me for what I did. I earned it. I have a right to ask. I mow your grass. I knock on your door. I say, I'm ready for my money. I'm benefited. You're benefited. Nothing wrong with that. That's wages. But the whole point is this. Abraham did not do that. He did not get God in his debt. God did not owe him anything. God did not owe him anything. It was not the case. For with grace are you saved through faith, Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. You know that passage. We cannot earn grace. In fact, that, that's a, that idea is a misnomer in the first place. Because if you earned it, it wouldn't be grace, it'd be wages. We cannot deserve grace. That would be wages. But we're saved by grace. We're not saved. We're saved by grace through faith. Not of ourselves. It's the gift of God. Not of works. That's the man should boast. Now, I want you to turn to James chapter 2. I know you've done this before, but I want you to do it again. And I want you to look at something. James chapter 2, verse 19. James said, you believe there's one God. You do well. Even demons believe and tremble. But do you want to know, O foolish man, that faith without works is dead? Was not Abraham our father justified by works? What are you saying, James? When he offered Isaac, his son, on the altar. Do you see that faith was working together with his works? And by works, faith was made perfect? The scripture was fulfilled, which says Abraham believed God and it was accounted him for righteousness. He was called the friend of God. You see then that a man is justified by works, not by faith only. You know what James just said? Paul was right. Paul said, the scripture says Abraham believed God. James said that. He's quoting. And it was accounted him for righteousness. Martin Luther did not like the book of James. He loved Romans, but he didn't like James. He called James, and I quote, a right straw epistle. Because he didn't see what was being what was happening here. Does Abraham believe in works? He does. Does James believe in faith without works? He does. Well, you say you've got the reverse. No, I don't have a reverse. That's a fact. 
depends on how you define works. See, works can be a mental ascent. Example, I had an instructor friend at a hospital. He was instructing students there in some course of their med students, uh, med studies. And he said, James, I have a problem. He said, I have to show this film every semester on smoking. And he said, it is bad. It's a bad film. I know it's right, but it's bad. I show it. I said, what do you do when you show it? He said, I go out into the hall and smoke. You know what he was saying? I believe that smoking is bad for you. It's a mental ascent. But I don't think it's going to get me. I think I can dodge it. That's, that's a mental ascent kind of faith. Is this faith or works? Saul of Tarsus so on the road to Damascus. He encounters a great light and a voice. This voice is Jesus Christ. And he says, Lord, what will you have me do? Do you think Saul of Tarsus was saying, how can I save myself? I don't think so. Saul of Tarsus was saying, look, I'm in a real mess. I've killed Stephen. I've arrested and killed other Christians. I'm going to Damascus to kill Christians now. What do you want me to do? I'm in your hands. I know who you are. I've always denied you, but I know who you are now. Lord, what will you have me to do? And you know what? When Ananias came to him and said, Saul, what are you waiting for? Quit praying. Get up and be baptized. Wash away your sins. Calling on the name of the Lord. Well, Ananias, I don't see any sense of that. No, no. I don't believe in human works. He didn't say that. You know what he did? He got up and was baptized. And his sins washed away. What about this one? The Red Sea, the wilderness, Pharaoh's army, Moses, lift up your rod and your hand across the sea. You know what he's asking Moses to do? He's asking Moses to work. It might not take much work to lift up your hand, but it takes some. He had to lift up his rod and the other hand, he lifted up two hands. And I don't think there was one person there who would have looked at it and said, look, Moses is opening the sea. I don't think one of those guys around there, they weren't too spiritual, but I don't think they would say, Moses is opening the sea. Because they knew a man couldn't do that. That was a work Moses was doing. It was God's work. He had faith enough not to say, well, I don't see any need of that, God. This is a big sea here. This thing is 10 miles wide. And I don't know how deep it is. But this is not going to work. No. He knew it would work. And his faith worked. So simple, so easy to understand. I think it is anyway. A faith of salvation is always a faith of obedient works. James understood faith like Paul understood it. And Paul understood works like James understood it.
Both of them knew the difference between merit and obedience. There's the difference. Can faith only save? Faith that trusts is the only thing we have. It saves through grace. But can mental sin only save? No, it won't. Has to be coupled with what God said. Has to be coupled with God's works. Works of merit, not, not on your life. No works of merit. Several years ago, there was a saying that arose in our brotherhood that said, we contribute not one whit to our salvation. And it disturbed the church greatly. It was a true statement. But many believed, this man is saying, look, we, we don't need to be baptized. We don't need to worship. We don't need to repent. We don't. That's really not what he said. He said, we contribute not one whit to our salvation. We don't buy any part of our salvation. We don't get God in a corner where he has to pay us wages. It's all by his grace. Now listen to this. Paul on Mars Hill said to those pagan professors, the times of this ignorance God overlooked, but now commands all men everywhere to repent. Well, I thought it was just faith. Repentance is faith. Repentance is that big faith, that trusting faith. He who believes and is baptized shall be saved. I thought it just took belief. Well, Jesus took the belief there, a recognition of the gospel, and said, okay, I want you to obey the gospel. I want you to believe that, but I want you to be baptized. Peter said, repent and be baptized. Turn away from your sins and be baptized for the remission of sins. But I'm going back again and say, men's works are in vain. I've had many people on their deathbeds to tell me, Brother James, I just don't believe I've done enough. You know, I really hate to say this, but sometimes I say, I agree with you. You haven't. And you can live a thousand more years than you want. I know I haven't done enough. We can't do enough. We're saved by God's mercy and His grace. We're saved as we, as we work in His works, not in ours. It's not a matter of how much we've done. It's a matter of our relationship to Him. Look at verse 4. Men's works are in vain, but I want to show you something. I'm going to use a word in here that's strange to you. I try not to use these words because some people might think I'm using profanity, but I'm not. I have a reason for doing what I'm doing. Now, to him who works, the wages are not counted. That is logi. Zantai. Logizantai. The wage is not logizantai, it's grace, but it's debt. But to him who does not work, but believes on him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is accounted logizantai for righteousness. Just as David also describes the blessedness of the man whom the Lord God imputes, logizantai. Righteousness, apart from works. 
Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and those whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord will not logizontai sins. What in the world does logizontai mean? It's a counting term. It means to reckon. It comes, we get our word logic from there. An accounting sheet is a logical sheet. Impute, count, account. All those are the same word, exactly the same word. They talk about the accounting and the bottom line of this. So the wages are not counted as grace. Logazontai, they don't go on that sheet. His faith is accounted for righteousness. They go on the sheet. God imputes, God gives Logazontai righteousness apart from works. And uh, blessed is a man to whom the Lord will not impute sin. God does not put that in his column. Does not make him accountable for that. Now Paul is going farther here than the Jews want him to go. Look at verse 9, verse 8, no, it's verse 9. <clears throat> Does this blessedness then come upon the circumcised only? Yes. Or upon the uncircumcised all? No, 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 not on the uncircumcised, they say. For we say that faith was accounted Abraham for righteousness. Abraham only? Yes, Abraham only. Of course, Abraham only. And always thought this is for us. Abraham and his circumcised descendants only. Then Paul says uh, in verse 10, how then was it accounted? When was it accounted to Abraham? Was it Logazantai to Abraham? When he was circumcised or uncircumcised? Man, I hate to answer that. Paul, it was, it was when he was uncircumcised. You're right. Not while he was circumcised, but he was uncircumcised. He received the sign of circumcision, a seal of righteousness, of faith, which he had while still uncircumcised, that he might be the father of those who believe. The father of the circumcised? Well, those who believe. Though they are uncircumcised, that righteousness may be imputed, the geese and tie, them also, and the father of circumcision to those who not only are of the circumcision, but who also walk in the steps of faith, which our father Abraham had while still uncircumcised. You hear what he's saying? He's saying Abraham's the father of the circumcised who walked in the faith and the uncircumcised who walked in the faith. Abraham is the father of both those groups. Now the Jews had to be frustrated. This this is way beyond their expectation. But I want you to notice something that may be very important here. In Acts 11, verse 28, verse 26, the disciples were first called Christians at Antioch. That word call there is not the regular kaleo, krematizo, with a special meaning. They were first called Christians by God at Antioch. What's the point? The church at Antioch was a Gentile church by and large. Relatively few Jews there. 
God did not name the people that were converted on Pentecost Christians. He did not name those shortly after that Christians. He waited until there was a large group of Gentiles up here, and he says, okay, I'm going to name my followers Christians now. So we get the whole group. We get Jew and Gentile together too. Amazing. Amazing it is. And that's what he said about Abraham. Yes, he was father of the uncircumcised because he was promised that when he was uncircumcised. And then his physical descendants were circumcised. So what? They were his too. Remember, Romans 3.21 But now the righteousness of God and the cross of Christ apart from the law is revealed being witnessed by the law and the prophets even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ to all and on all who believe. Very simple. God's righteousness is given to those who believe. Jew and Gentile alike. And as far as we're concerned Isaiah 64, 6, and I will not define this. You can look it up. All our righteousness, Isaiah said, are like filthy rags. That's human righteousness. That's the works of merit I can do. I have no value in salvation. Verse 14, for those who are of the law are heirs. Faith is made void. The promise made of no effect. If those who were born to Abraham and under the law of Moses became heirs, Jesus died in vain. There's no purpose in it. Because the law brings about wrath. For where there is no law, there's no transgression. As a matter of fact, God didn't do them a favor when he gave them the law. He should have just not given a law because when he gave the law, he condemned every one of them. Because where there's no law, there's no sin. And here they go along and the law comes and they're all sinners. Jesus had to die for them too. Therefore, it is our faith that it might be according to grace. As pointed out before, merit nullifies grace. If I mow your lawn and you pay me, that's not grace. It can't be grace. It's impossible. So that the promise may be Sure, to all the seed, not only to those who are of the law, but also to those who are of the faith of Abraham, not of the law, who is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you a father of many nations in the presence of him whom he believed. I'm going to stop there just a minute and say, Paul is presenting some things that are very difficult for them to understand. I made you a father of many nations, not just the Jews. You fathered many people before there were Jews. Not just that. But look how paradoxical he gets now. You know what a paradox is. It's a contradiction. It looks like a contradiction. Somebody said the paradox is truth standing on his head to attract attention. So notice the paradoxes. God who gives life to the dead. That's a paradox. Cause things that do not exist as though they did. It's a paradox. Who contrary to hope, in hope believed. So that he might become the father of many nations. According to that which is spoken. So shall your descendants be. That's big. 
Now there's a story in the Old Testament, if I can call it that, that you know about. Hosea was ordered by God to go take a wife, was a prostitute, and he did. Had a child by her named him Jezreel. Had a second child named him Loruhama. Had a third child named him or her Loami. I want to concentrate on those last two. The word lo in Hebrew means not. It's like you have perfect and unperfect. It's like the un. Possible, impossible. It's like the m. Ruhema means having mercy. Lo Ruhema means not having mercy. Ami means people. Lo Ami means not my people. That's pretty strict. So here's Hosea with a child named Jezreel, perhaps representing the battle, I'm not sure, in the valley of Jezreel. Lo Ruhema, not having mercy, Lo Ami, not my people. Some have supposed that that little girl was not his, which would be pretty logical, I suppose. Now look, though, at 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9. This is important. Peter says, But you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people, that you will proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light, who once were not a people, but are now the people of God, who had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. He's looking back at Hosea and saying, look what you learned. Not having mercy, now your name is Mercy. Your name is Ruhema now. Not my people, Loami, your name is Amy now. I love that. I love it. That's the new law. New Testament. Thank God. And not being weak in faith, he did not consider his own body already dead since he was about 100 years old. The deadness of Sarah's womb. He did not waver at the promise of God through unbelief. I want to stop here and point something out. Abraham had a hard time with the with the birth of Isaac. He, he tried many things. He he said, okay, God, I know you want me to have a son, and I can't. So, But I have a son I have a son here who was born in my family. He's a Damascene. His name is Eliezer. He can be the son of promise. God said, no, no, coming out of your body. Didn't come out of his body, so he and Sarah got together. And ladies, that was a dumb thing for her to do. She recommended he take another wife, a concubine. And he did, and she had a baby. Legally, Sarah's baby, but it never did work out that way. And God said, that's not it. Sarah will have a child. Sarah heard that and laughed. And Abraham, when he first heard it, he fell on the ground on his face and laughed. Some have said that Abraham was laughing in joy. Perhaps so. Uh, Sarah was laughing and doubting. She was. But I'm not sure Abraham was laughing in joy. Might have been mixed emotions. He might have said, this just can't be. But the fact that he didn't see everything clearly didn't mean he wavered. He stayed on course. He stayed on course. 
which is a lesson for us. We have a sin nagging at us. We have to reject it, reject it, reject it, and stay on course. We must. Have somebody trying to pull us away from God? Reject it, reject it, stay on course. Not easy. Has to be done. That's what he did. He didn't waver. He didn't stumble. He didn't fall out of step. This whole thing. Thank God. He didn't consider the deadness of Sarah's womb. He said, okay, if God said it, that's what it's going to be. He did not waver at the promise of God through unbelief, but was strengthened in faith, giving glory to God, and being fully convinced that what he had promised, he was able to perform. And therefore, it was accounted to him for righteousness. There it is again. Put on his sheet. Put on his accounting sheet. Because he believed that. It is not written for his sake alone that it was imputed to him, but for also for us. And Paul, I might say also for us. It shall be imputed to us who believe in him, who raised up Jesus our Lord from the dead, who was delivered up because of our offenses, was raised because of our justification. I pointed out Galatians 2.20 over and over again, but I'll do it again. If you are a Christian, you have been crucified. Paul said, I'm crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who gave his life for me. So we died on the cross. We're baptized into his death. Romans chapter 6 teaches us all the benefits that he has there for us. We get that. What does this do for you? What does it do for your faith? You know, when I was a little boy, we had a preacher in the gospel meeting. His name was Roy Burgess. He was a great uncle to the brother Burgess that used to worship here. I loved him so much. He was a chart preacher. And he had a chart, had a big circle for the saved in the church. And he had steps up there leading into that circle. I really appreciated that. And he had an H here, which is here, a B here, believe, R here, repent, C, confess, and then baptized like that. It's commonly called a five-stepper. I'd like you to know I'm a five-stepper. I don't preach it exactly like that. I, I've differed just a little, but all those steps are still there. I take the, I take the, and I made me a chart. Use it down South Georgia when I preach there. I take that big circle, which is the church is saved. Then I put a little dot out here. The little dot's where I began. It's where there's something in me that says, I need to be a Christian. And I'm conceived there. And then my faith begins. My faith develops. My faith comes to include repentance. It grows. My faith comes to include confession. My faith comes to include baptism into Christ. So I see it as this big circle 
with this horn coming up there, horn-shaped object, where faith grows and grows and grows and grows until it matures into baptism into Christ. They both say the same thing, except I don't want anybody to get the idea that we hear and walk off from hearing. We don't walk off from it. We believe and don't walk off from that. We increase it. We don't walk off from repentance. We don't walk off from confession. All these things go with us. That's what faith is. Anyone who defines faith as a mental ascent is not talking about saving faith. The reason James says faith without works is dead. If you don't do the works of God, your faith is dead. If you show your students film on cigarettes and you go out and haul and smoke, your faith is dead. It won't work. But brothers and sisters in Christ, the gospel story throughout the Bible and especially in the book of Acts, we're taught by example what all these things mean. Nobody ever refused any part of the plan of salvation. Nobody ever argued about repentance. Some of them wouldn't do it. Nobody ever argued about baptism. Just didn't do it. That was part of faith. And that was a maturing of faith. Brought them into the body of Christ. The Philippian jailer was glad to be baptized the same hour of the night. He repented, watched their stripes, and was baptized, he and his family, and servants, straightway. Very simple, very plain. We can't miss it, I don't think. Anybody have any questions or comments? You're you're exactly right. Uh, Brother Bill said that 7 and 8 is a uh, definition of God's righteousness. Uh... Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man whom the Lord will not impute sin. That is the definition of forgiveness and safety in Christ. Is that where you want to start with that? Yes, yes, thank you. Thank you for that. Anyone else? Okay. Verse 11, he received the sign of circumcision. Oh, excuse me, yes. Seal of righteousness of the faith, which he had while still uncircumcised. He didn't get it through circumcision. God gave it to him before then. And it might be the father of those who believe. Very good. Thank you. Anything else? Well, that's the first bell, so we'll pray anyway. Give you a chance to meet people who are here. Father, thank you for hearing us. Thank you for this great book. Thank you for this great audience that's here that are so interested in knowing your word and studying. Bless us as we study together. Protect us, care for us, keep us safe in your service. We pray through Christ. Amen. Don't run in the hall. We hope you have enjoyed this lesson from God's word. If you would like to continue your study of New Testament Christianity, please send your name and address to World Bible School. West Huntsville Church of Christ, 1519 Old Monrovia Road, Northwest, Huntsville, Alabama, 35806. Or if you prefer, send your name and address by email to wbs at westhuntsville.org.